Good morning. I, you probably can't tell by looking at me, but I wrestled all four years of high school. I wrestled at 112 pounds in, a, in my freshman year, 124 in my sophomore, 136 pounds in my junior, and 154 pounds in my senior year. They have those weight classifications for a reason. Because when you enter a match, you don't want to be outsized by somebody that's 50 pounds heavier and over 200 pounds. That wouldn't be a fair match, would it? I couldn't even train. You know, we trained, we sprinted. We did all kinds of things to prepare to give us the very best chance to meet our opponent and pin to defeat our opponent. But, you know, if you go on to the mat to enter a match and you're facing somebody that's a few inches taller and 50 pounds heavier, no chance. That's, uh, see, very important. That's the one thing we could count on. Our opponent would be the same size. In fact, I think I stunted my growth, making sure that I made weight, you know, before my matches. I was always, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm, in, I'm trying to grow, and I'm denying my body food and different things so that I could make weight for my matches, because there are a lot of big people in my family. Um, anyway, no complaints there, really, but I do believe that. You know what my biggest foe was in wrestling? And in life, uh, my sense of identity, what was going on up here. And uh, even in wrestling, uh, like in my senior year, I had great expectations at 154 of going to state. And when we would be sprinting, I was sprinting with Brady Hall, who was at the 163-pound classification. And by the way, he went on to win state that year. But we were sprinting together. He put me in a cradle. I broke that cradle, but he slipped and he cracked my ankle. And there was my season. Yeah, it was a big disappointment. But really what had plagued me was this idea in my mind that I wasn't the guy that could really be a champion. Not like a Brady Hall. Sometimes it's that identity in our, in our minds because it's in, our, we're, you know, it's in our minds that this is where truth is, you know? And uh, I mention that because we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. And just as the battle to move from somebody who is just a competitor to a champion, in our Christian lives... A lot of times uh, we're impeded, we're kind of held back by a sense of identity that really isn't grounded in Jesus Christ. Uh, 
And just as the battle was in my mind in wrestling over the, you know, my identity and what I could do, what I could achieve, so it is in our minds often when it comes to the spiritual battles that we fight. I used to play golf um, a couple times a week when I could, and uh, a favorite quote of mine was, championship golf is played on a five and a half inch course between our ears. I always thought that it was uh, Arnold Palmer who said that. I checked it out this week. It wasn't Arnold Palmer. It was Bobby Jones. But some of you could care less. But that is a very true statement because in any endeavor, any great endeavor, and certainly in in once like, like golf, I mean, you can have everything else in place, but it's how you play that game up here that makes all the difference. And so it is. What we know and our mindset the way our brain works in Christ is really important to the issue of spiritual warfare. And I want us to look specifically this morning at verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. I won't read, but we're going to be looking the next three weeks at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And verse 10 says, Become strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Become strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. I could kind of economize it like this. Become strong in the strength of the Lord. But however you think about it, Paul, right here, without even giving us a hint, if we were just reading from the left to the right, and we didn't even know what verse 11, 12, 13, 14 had to say, Paul would say, and now, most importantly, finally, with the very last thing, be strong in the Lord, in the, you know, be strong in his strength. That's what he wants to emphasize. And that's good for all of life. That's good 24-7. And it's especially good when it comes to spiritual warfare. And that's what we're going to be looking at the next uh, three Sundays. We'll look at standing against the enemy. We'll look at standing fully equipped. And we'll look at standing alert. This morning, I want to just give us kind of a brief introduction, as it were. Um, I can't say everything there is to say about spiritual warfare in a few minutes, so I'm going to begin with just a few things that I think will, will help orient us. Uh, I have five things that I want you to know, and the first is this. And this won't come as a surprise, but Jesus is Lord. That's number one. Jesus is Lord. I'm going to give them to you all, and then I'm going to come back and talk about them so you'll know them. Two, Satan is not God's equal, nor is he the brother of Jesus. 
But the most important part is Satan is not, you can say the devil or the evil one, Satan is not the equal of God. Three, in Christ, it's weakness that gives us power to vanquish spiritual warfare. In Christ, it's weakness that gives us power to vanquish spiritual warfare. And then, number four, in Christ, you may be deceived, but never possessed. You may be deceived, but never possessed. If you're in Christ, you're filled with the Spirit, you are God's possession, and you cannot be demonically possessed, which is something that sometimes we think about or wonder about and due to popular culture and ideas about these things but that needs to be dealt with and so I want you to know that and then the fifth thing I want you to know and do is don't play the fool don't play the fool let me take up this Jesus is Lord Something that I don't think we often appreciate about Ephesians is there's a great emphasis on powers in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And this wouldn't be commonly known, but this, the, the huge, large uh, metropolis of Ephesus, which was the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, uh, it was also uh, a place of the magical arts. They were practiced. And of course, that seems eerie to us, but it, they were practiced in regards to the powers of the world, which involved the pantheon, the, the vast array of divine, semi-divine, unseen figures uh, within the Greco-Roman world. Uh, gods were everywhere. In fact, I've been reading uh, Augustine's City of God, which as a Christian, Saint Augustine, as we sometimes refer to him, as a Christian in the Roman Empire, he was, he was converted out of um, polytheistic paganism where he was an orator an instructor a very intelligent man but in his uh, city of God which was a contrast between the kingdom of God and the, the, the earthly city of Rome or the, the kingdom of Rome if you will uh, he kind of blasts all the gods of Rome I mean, he kind of parades how ridiculous this is because there are so many. And there's even, I mean, he even talks about a god of the sewer. Or in childbirth, how many gods were involved in different aspects of childbirth. So he, he wants to pit against that, the one true God, and say, my goodness, you know, can't... <laughs> What's Zeus doing in, in this thing? Because Zeus was supposedly the god at the top of the hot pile. But you see, when you think about it that way, when you think of it this way, apart from Jews that came 
to Christ. Every convert of every church that Paul planted in every pagan city had been reared from birth in a world that was full of gods and they had very little, if any, or no knowledge except their knowledge of the Jews, which were a peculiar people to them, did they have any notion of one God. And so when we read this letter, it is being written to former pagans in a city where it has the largest temple of Artemis or Diana in the Roman pantheon, which was a divinity, a woman god, and we know from archaeological artifacts and surviving letters, and, and they called them letters, but there's even what's called the Ephesia Grammata. They were these, a compilation, and they were famous even in antiquity, of uh, magical spells because the people were involved in naming uh, naming the names which was to invoke the power of the gods to their advantage. They, it was like prayer for them or cursing. And it's how they managed life. If they really wanted to succeed in something, then they would invoke the gods and the gods of those different practices or activities and their life was rife with it. And when you went through the city in the center of the city, there were temples everywhere. Temples to the array of gods. And in a pagan household, there would be the household gods. And they all represented levels of, you know, in an ascending ladder of power and influence in their lives. All social activities, all the festivals, all the community holidays. If there was a, a, the city-wide day, day off from work, the, all those festivals were dedicated to the deities, to the gods. And the foods and the celebration and all of the, all the fun. So it would be like, you know, if you're a high schooler, all the things that you would do at high school would be built around the gods. All the dinners, all the social activities would be ingrained with sacrifices that were symbolically communicating different dispositions and stances toward the deities. It's, un, it's important to understand this because then when you take up Ephesians, if you pay attention, you can see how much Paul is speaking to that society when he talks about the rulers and powers. When, remember when we were in chapter 1? Let me just give you a quick... How does Ephesians open? It opens in, so to speak, the court of God before the creation of the world. And we are allowed to see God's plan for the expanse of history. And it is all centered in Jesus Christ. And it is all about God's love and redemption in Jesus Christ. And as it plays out in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, Jesus Christ has been 
so to speak, dedicated or called by God to head up everything. He's going to be the head supreme of the entire administration and organization of the plan of God over the scope of world history and its denouement or great finish. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out. And then in verses 15 and following, through the end of the chapter, Paul takes up a prayer. And he prays that you might know. Now, after this grand introduction, he says, I pray that you may know. And what's he want you to know? He wants you to know three things. The first thing is the hope of who you are in Jesus Christ. The second thing is the inheritance that you have. This is in verse 18, that you have in Jesus Christ. And then when you come to verse 19, this is what he says. I want you to know not only the hope, not only the inheritance, but I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let me just pause there for a moment. Where does belief take place? Where does belief take place? On that five and a half inch course between your ears. On that five and a half inch mat between your ears. In the five and a half inch day in which you live between your ears. In the five and a half inch life in which you live between your ears. That's where belief takes place. That's where faith, everybody has faith. Everybody in the world has faith. Faith is, does not mean just certain things. Everybody puts their trust, their confidence, which is the meaning of faith, they put their trust and their confidence in something. Out in the world where they have no regard for Jesus Christ, maybe they don't know him and are ignorant of him. They still have faith. It's not what sometimes is called saving faith because their faith is in other people. Their faith is in their job. Their faith is in their own abilities. You see what I'm talking about? It's the object of your faith that determines your salvation because your faith is in Jesus Christ and he is powerful to save. These other things are not. Not the demons, not the devils, not anyone is as powerful as Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand that when he prays that you might understand the immeasurable, you have no metric by which to grasp the dimension of the power and the greatness toward you who believe. Because that's where it becomes relevant, isn't it? Do you believe it? And that is where faith comes in. That's where we respond and we act on the truth that God reveals. And we call that the Bible. We call that the New Testament. We call that the gospel. And because it's revealed, then we take it to heart. We believe it. And it shapes the way we see reality. 
the way we see one another, the way we make choices then, the way we make plans. What's going on up here is very important. And it has everything to do with spiritual warfare. But notice who's Lord. According to the working of his great might, now verse 20, chapter 1, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, now get this, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above. This is not a photo finish. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those four words are found in the very surviving artifacts of magical practices that we know of from not only Ephesus but from the first century. This is the, the terminology that people would name the name of to invoke the power of those deities in the service of their efforts that they would ply by sacrifice or incantations or things of that kind. Paul starts off with that, and he talks about God's decree. No manipulation. This is what God invoked, and it's all of grace and mercy and love. Its target is you and me. It's all favorable. And the power to enact it has been manifest in Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now Paul is praying that we would know this, this hope, this inheritance, and this power toward us, which is without peer or rival. And so he names them above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Every name that is named. Why did he say that? He says it again in chapter 3, verse 14, when he talks about the Father who is the creator of all things and everything named that is named, he has named. It all goes back to him. There's no competition, you see, there's, there's no deity, God, and I haven't said it yet because I'm trying to talk about the first world, but not only did Augustine make a point of this, but Paul himself does. There are no gods. They're just demons in the service of the devil, Satan, the evil one, the tempter. Behind all those images and temples are the work of Satan and his minions, his lackeys. But what Paul is saying here, as he speaks to the Ephesians to make these very points, he is saying, you have no rival. You don't need to participate in any of this because these powers have no power in relation to the power that is already in you, that you call Lord. 
that you call Lord. So when we say, or I tell you, the first thing that we need to know is this, and I say Jesus is Lord, I want you to grasp, in a sense, the dimension of what I'm saying. And verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. To the church. To the church. If you have a low opinion of the church, you do not have the opinion of Scripture. You do not have the opinion of the New Testament. You do not have the opinion of the, of the focus and purpose and glory of the work of God. It is the church, not the buildings, the people. And we, the church, to grasp that, have to appreciate that you and I, as his people, we are the spearhead of God's glory. The glory of what he's doing in Jesus Christ through his grace. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 10 real quick. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that you are not just... You know, sometimes we do. We, we really have a take-it-or-leave-it kind of attitude toward, toward this whole Jesus thing sometimes. Not you, of course, because you're here, but those that happen to be missing, maybe... It's, man it's manifest in our society. I'm not really trying to pick on anyone. I'm not looking over your shoulders, reading your mail, or peeking in your windows. But I see it in the culture. I see it in the church across America. I had family invited to a birthday party for a young child this morning. That's the first time I have ever heard of that having a child's birthday party, celebration for all of the children's friend, child's friends on a Sunday morning. And it, where's that put Christ in the scale of importance? But where does Paul put Christ in the scale of power and importance and significance? And then he says, because of him, you have significance. You, I could point to everyone in this room and say, you do not see your identity clearly. You are like I was when I was in high school. And I failed in the wrestling matches here because I didn't have a clear picture of my identity in Christ and what God was seeking to do through me and through you 
because he is manifesting not just to others, not just to this world, but to the powers and authorities that are his opponents in the pursuits and goals of Satan. We are his message, his message of the wisdom that he displayed in his grace and love in Jesus Christ. One other, uh, let, me, let me go to number two. I've got to move. Satan is not God's equal, nor is he the brother of Jesus. For example, something on the same level with Satan would be the angel Michael, who's mentioned in Jude 9, an archangel. So if he's an archangel, it's important for you to understand that when we think of like Marvel superheroes, uh, and they're all doers of good, fighters for liberty and justice in the American way, right? But you, you take, for example, The Flash, who my, is my grandson's, one of his favorite superheroes. Um, no superhero can be in two places at once. Even The Flash has to dart around. See, he's not omniscient, not omnipotent, not all-knowing, not all-powerful. I, I know what we mean when we say, the, like, the devil made me do it, or I was tempted by the devil, or the devil was, I feel the devil, you know, was giving me a hard time today. I know what you're talking about, or I think I do. If you think you're talking about the real devil, hmm, I'm not so sure. But, you know, he has lots of lackeys. He, have, he has lots of water carriers and gophers and people in league with him. And you know what else? A lot of times the devil doesn't even have to bother with us because we're just moving along with his plans and program anyway. Because we're moving with the program of society and the philosophy of the world. Our values are of the world. We're pursuing the same things the world pursues. Our dreams, our goals, our achievements are all measured in worldly terms. Sometimes we use the, we use the devil or his demons as an excuse for our own laziness and inactivity, our lack of commitment. There was a guy back, Flip Wilson was his name. He had a whole stand-up gig about the devil made me do it. But I want you to know there are two realms, and we see it in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 3 give us the realm of the dead. And you know what it says in the very first verse? You were dead in the trespasses in sins in which you walked. That includes all of us, you see. And then he goes on to talk about that realm and its powers. And he says, Satan is the prince of the power of darkness, the realm of death. And then in verses 4 and following, we come to this very important contrast. The word but in verse 4, but God. Listen to that but God. The entire realm is a realm of death. 
until you get to verse 4. But God, God rich in his mercy, in the demonstration of his love in Jesus Christ, raised him from the dead to give us new life. That's the kingdom of Christ. That's the kingdom of God. And yet sometimes we just wander around like the walking dead, which is evidently everybody's favorite show. I've never seen it, and I'm not trying to be smug about it. I just haven't. Back in the day, I saw the original Day of the Living Dead, and I thought it was, I don't know, it ruined me for, for the future, I suppose. But there's a, there's a spiritual metaphor here. Sometimes we're just really tooling along like the world. Satan doesn't even have to lift a finger. He didn't have to give you his personal attention. He didn't have to zip around. He can crack a beer and put his feet up. He's got messengers to do that. So I wanted you to appreciate that. In Christ, number three, weakness gives us power to vanquish spiritual warfare. James says in verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil. Note the order. And do you know what you have to do to submit to God? You have to acknowledge your weakness. You have to be weak. You have to say, you're more powerful than me. Paul, interestingly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he takes up the subject of a thorn in his flesh. Do you remember this? He says, it is the messenger of Satan. Now, if I had a thorn in my flesh that I thought was the work of Satan, I would say to God, God, you've got to get rid of this. Because if you don't get rid of this, I really can't serve you effectively. I mean, how can I, you know, reach the heights of a Billy Graham if I've got this thorn in my flesh? So, and Paul says, I appealed three times. But what did God say? You know it probably. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made powerful in your weakness. And that's the most important thing we have to appreciate, you see, because that's really what Paul is saying in verse 10 of chapter 6 in Ephesians. He is saying that it is important for us to become strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, not in our own. And that's the biggest deception of our world, that you're a wuss, you're a softy, if you don't have the internal, personal strength to do the great things that you ought to be doing in this world. And you know, that's just the power tactics of the world's strategy, whether it's business or getting ahead and achievement in any area of life in this world. But you know what? Those power tactics... They don't produce what has been emphasized here and is across the face of the gospel, the true power of God. And that is his grace, his mercy, 
demonstrated in his love, his redemptive love in Jesus Christ. Did they think Jesus was soft when he was crucified? Yeah, sure. And yet, in his defeat, God was victorious. Number four, in Christ you may be deceived, but never possessed. I already touched on this. In the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verse 11, Satan is called Apollyon in Greek and Abaddon in Hebrew. It means destroyer. And Satan is associated with a history of destruction and violence and death even as we saw reflected and implied in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Even though he, the evil one, is intent on promoting physical violence and death to destroy you, his primary mission is to oppose the redemptive purposes of God. We see it in the temptation of Jesus, And we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 of Paul's writing to the Corinthians where he said, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, Satan's number one objective is to keep people away from the life-saving, life-transforming love of God in Christ. And the way he does it is by blinding, or if you will, at the heart of spiritual warfare is the enemy's attempt to deface God in your eyes and in the eyes of the world. And number five, don't play the fool. Don't play the fool. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, uh, Paul says... Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. But he says love builds up. And you know what he goes on to talk about in chapter 8? He talks about the condition of the Corinthians who have come to Christ. They've been baptized. They observe the Lord's Supper just as we're about to. And in doing that, they have knowledge. They now know that there is only one true God. And all of these community events and festivals and social gatherings that take place in the temples in which they eat meat offered to the images, to the deities that the idols or images represent, they know that there's no truth in that, that they don't really exist. And so they start participating And Paul says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Well, he didn't quite say it like that, but in effect. And then in chapter 10, he takes up Israel in the wilderness from the Old Testament. And he says, what happened to them? He draws a correlation with the Corinthians. He says, you're eating and participating in all this stuff, he says, you think it's harmless because you have knowledge. And what it has made you 
is indifferent. And I want to draw our attention to that because Paul said you can't eat the body of Christ and the bread that has, or the meal of demons. He's, he, he makes a big deal in chapter 8 and 10. He says, don't you know there are demons behind all of this stuff? You think it's harmless because you don't believe in the gods now. You believe in the one true God. But you participate in all these things. And he says there's something more, something deeper at work than you realize. And you know that there are no gods. But you don't know what you're doing when you participate because it draws you in in a way just as the reality of this bread that you take when you name the name of Jesus Christ and this cup that you take represents the reality of your salvation. When you engage in those other things, you are, in a way, engaging the activity of those demons in your lives. Now, I don't want to make you freaky nervous. But I don't want us to be so sober and knowledgeable. See, we don't believe in myths. We believe in science. And science says all that stuff is just a bunch of... There is no supernatural. There's only what you can touch and smell and see and hear and feel. And You see, that creeps into your life over and over again until you take this bread and this cup and this becomes some lifeless thing too. Jesus becomes more and more lifeless to you because is it really real? And we're so engaged in the, all of the things that we do of this world, Jesus is given a smaller and smaller place in our lives. And pretty soon we come and there's this once a month we observe this cup and this plate. Sometimes if we miss this Sunday... We don't even observe it once a month in practice. And this calls you to the greatest commitment and worldview of your life, and yet it's given a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller place. You see the correlation? Paul says what you're doing, Corinthians, is like Israel did when they took God's grace for granted. I fear that we, like the Corinthians, I fear that we in the church across this country are being called, need to be called, to recommit ourselves, rededicate ourselves to Jesus Christ. The trends are that people go attend church. You, ten years ago, it was three of four Sundays in a month. And now it's dwindled to two. Why is that? Because we're engaging the demonic activity of a secular, materialist, anti-theistic, atheistic worldview in our culture and society. And we're so involved in it, so deceived by it, that over time, God is dead. 
That's the battle. And as we take the bread and the cup, let's recommit ourselves to the one who gave his life for us. He who is Lord, who has no peer or rival, who has given you a great hope, inheritance, and power to be the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you will, please stand. It's a heavy subject, spiritual warfare. I would have you be on your guard. Um, I've never seen a demon. I don't know if if I would recognize one. Um, I'll talk more about that sort of thing in the days to come. But the point is, be wise to spiritual warfare, especially uh, kind of under the umbrella of this topic. I would not be surprised, because I'm certainly experiencing it on a regular basis as I prepare and get ready for this. So be aware of that. It's, not, it's a heavy topic, but it's a happy one, because you have the power to experience that victory in the strength of Jesus Christ, and uh, it's yours in Christ. So uh, it's heavy, but it's happy because you are victors in Christ. And uh, just let him flex his muscles. That's what you need to do. All right, God bless you. Hi, Steve. Good to see you, man. How are you? Good. Got back to see, uh, pick up our last bunch of stuff before we head back to Wells. It's good to, you guys are like founding members of this church in my mind. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. You were very significant to me in the, even before we got moved down here. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, hey, we love you. Oh, thank you. I love you, too, you guys, too. And I appreciate you And we always come visiting. back. We're like a bad penny. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Thanks, Steve. Say hello. Miss, I missed our job? meetings. Yeah, we'll get some in here or there somehow. It's, it's, it's going all right. Good. You know, it, it is. It's... Uh, you know, and again, you know, the message today, just trying, you know, there's something just that was clicking when, you know, just is that, you know, God, I got to look at, I got to look at life from a different perspective, you know, because, you know, like I said, we've been without, you know, steady income for so long that it's almost overwhelming because I see, you know, oh, wow, now we can do this, now we can do that, now we can and it's like just to have that I need to have a perspective that goes wait a minute slow down you know that's what the world seeks after and like you said just I don't know what God's going to be doing with me there I still don't know you know but I think just to have look at things from a different perspective God's got me there for some reason I don't know what it may be but you need to be maybe thinking other kingdom more kingdom focused. Yeah. And I don't have to be, you know, because I think 
oh, well, I got I to gotta go through a year probation, and I got to, you know, what if this happened? What if I make the wrong decision, and, and it gets the city in trouble, or I get sued for violating someone's, you know, constitutional rights, and it's like, that's all, you know, that's something that's, that's more of a humanistic kind of focus. It's like, wait, we've not put you there. So don't worry about it. Yeah, that passage in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul goes on and says, I can handle all this stuff because I know now that this isn't evidence that God is far from me or... No, I, this is God is going to give me the ability to, to withstand this, to triumph over it. And to try to live more... And, he says, yeah. and because of that, he says, I can endure anything now. So, that's Good great. stuff. Well, appreciate your friend. Like I yeah. said, hopefully we can. Let me pray real quick. And Thank just, you. I, I just still want to celebrate that you yeah. have a job. Yeah. Father, again, we just stop to praise you for your blessings at, at this time in this new job and position. and. I pray that you'll use Dan in ways that exceed the job description and the job requirements. Make him a blessing to others and make him a blessing of your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, thanks, sir. Yeah. And I'm excited.